Mark chapter 10, starting at verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your your servant. And whoever should be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Well, when I was starting the church about four and a half years ago, uh, one piece of advice that I was given uh, was I was told to not surround myself with too many with, of what they call yes men. And uh, a yes man is a woman or a man who basically places a high value on relationships. And so they kind of go along with and agree with everything. Even if you're doing something that's wrong or maybe it's not the wisest choice, they'll just go along with it because they like you and want to make you happy. So, for example, you ask a yes man or a yes woman, so I'm thinking about starting a new job. I said, yes, that's wonderful. Great choice. I, I've been thinking that you should start a new job for a long time. And you say, well, I've been thinking about a few different possible career options. And you say, well, the first thing I'm thinking, I was thinking about maybe being a fighter fighter. They say, yes, great choice. That's a noble profession. You could help people. Awesome idea. Or I'm thinking about becoming a waiter. That's great. There's great tips. It's just an awesome opportunity. Or I'm thinking about becoming a terrorist. They're like, Wonderful, awesome idea. And that maybe long term, not so great, but a great idea. I mean, they just go along with everything that you say. That's what a yes man or yes woman does. And what's interesting in this passage is I find it quite baffling because Jesus foretells his death and what's going to happen to him. And then James and John come up to him and they basically ask Jesus to be a yes man. Look at what he says, they say to him. They say, whatever we ask you, we want you to do. They come up and ask Jesus, whatever we ask you, would you please just do that? They're looking for a blank check. Just sign the bottom line. We'll fill in the amount. Just be a yes man. Say yes to my request. Now we think about that as being really crazy, and it was. But sometimes I think that we want the same thing from God. We want God to just say yes. You know, we come to him with our requests and we're not looking for God's will, so to speak. We're looking for a yes. God, I want you to increase my financial stability. We're looking for a yes. God, I want you to heal me. We're looking for a yes. 
But sometimes when we do that, when we're looking for just a yes, maybe those requests that we have are not necessarily in God's plan. And so Jesus isn't going to sign just a blank check to them. And he he asks them point blank, so what do you want me to do for you? And James and John say, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left. Grant for us to sit one at your right hand, one at your left. Now, the person of honor would be the person in the center, the person who was kind of the first, you know, the first man, so to speak, would be on the right hand, and the second in importance would be on the left hand. So basically, they're saying, when you come into your kingdom, could we be the first and second, respectively, in your kingdom? According to uh, an ancient commentary that's called the Talmud, uh, it says, of three walking along, the teacher should walk in the middle. The greater of his disciples to the right, the small one at his left. So they want Jesus at the center. And they come a long way in acknowledging that he is the Messiah. That All the disciples don't always get that. And they realize he's the Messiah. But they're not just trying to worship him. They're trying to exalt themselves along with Jesus. They say, make me your right hand men. Scholar James Edwards writes about this. The brothers hope to honor Jesus while honoring themselves. He says, how easily worship and discipleship are blended with self-interest. Or worse, self-interest is masked as worship and discipleship. God, you're so great. And because you are so great, would you just give me what I want? And sometimes maybe we worship God not because he's so great or because he's done great things for us, but we worship him sometimes maybe because we want him to become a yes man, say yes to our requests, to give us what we want. But what's also interesting about this brother's request is Jesus has just told them how, in, in quite detail how he's going to be brutalized and crucified. I mean, it's a harrowing tale. Look at uh, verse 33. He says, see, we're going to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, they will rise. He he will rise. And it seems like the brothers just skip over all of that and they go right to the raising from the dead, right to the glorification. And they just say, would you make us first and second in your kingdom? But Jesus reorients them to the suffering aspect. And he says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? And they say, yes, we can drink that cup. And they're probably thinking to themselves, well, if we have a little suffering, that's okay. If we can be first and second in God's kingdom, it'll be worth any cost. And Jesus says, yes, you will face that suffering. You will drink that cup. You will experience that baptism. But he says, it's not for me. To decide who sits at the right hand. But for those whom, for whom it has been prepared. He says, the Father has prepared before the foundation of the world who will sit at my right hand and my left hand. So you just coming here and bringing a request to me, it's not going to change the plan of God that's been in place since the foundation of the world. So in essence, they get a big fat no from Jesus. No, you're not going to be right hand, on the right hand and the left hand in my kingdom. That's for God to decide. And that's for whom it has been prepared. And then the disciples hear what's happening, the other disciples, and they start to get angry. And you can understand why. I mean, James and John, they're trying to exalt themselves over the other disciples. 
They're trying to become the favorites. And the other disciples, for their part, they probably long to be in the same place. They probably long to be at the right hand and left hand of Jesus. In short, what they longed for was significance or greatness. But what Jesus is about to do is he's about to redefine what the world's understanding of what success and greatness is all about. Look at what Jesus says to them. He says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. So look, let's look a little closer here at what he says. He says first, you know. This verb for you know is in the perfect tense in Greek. And in the, the perfect tense in Greek uh, indicates an action that's happened in the past, but that has continuing effects in the present. So it's happened in the past, continuing effects in the present. Often you translate the perfect tense as have. Like, you have known. And what Jesus could be indicating here is, since your youth, you have known how the world operates. You understand the world system. And that's, that's influencing how you understand what greatness and success is all about. He says, then he moves on, he says... Those who are considered rulers, you know that those who are considered rulers, which indicates that they're not ultimate rulers, they're people who uh, rule over people, but ultimately they're under God and God could wipe them out with one fell swoop. He says, you know, or you have known those who are considered rulers. And he says that those who are considered rulers lord it over them and the great ones among them exercise authority over them. The great ones exercise authority over them. The ones that they consider to be great, the rulers. Now this is written in a Roman culture that was built upon the idea of submission and power. And so there were a number of things in place where the Romans would demonstrate their power and authority. For example, crucifixion. That was given to kind of be a deterrent to show people this is how powerful we are. And this is what happens to anybody who rebels against Rome. So the people who are strong, the people who are powerful, the people who have force, those are the people who are great, and those are the people who get ahead. Now, in our culture, it's a little bit different. It's not quite as extreme as a Roman culture. Yet many of the things we associate with success or greatness or the good life have to do with power. For example, you think about what a successful person might be like. You might think they have a great job. If they have a great job, they probably have some authority over other people. Or they have a lot of money. Money is, in essence, a form of power. So, for example, you go uh, to eat lunch today. You hand someone a piece of paper, some money. And they do things for you. They make food for you. They wait on you. They give you something to drink. They do those things because you hand them money. And so, if you have a lot of money, you have a lot of power or authority over other people. Someone who has an incredible amount of money, they might not have to work at all because other people can do stuff for them. Essentially, money is power. So what many people in our society think is the path to being great is the path of power. Whether that's having a lot of money, whether that's having a lot of influence, whether that's fame, 
And the people that we read about in the newspaper or in magazines or see on television, they're the people that have a lot of those things. They have a lot of power, the so-called great ones, the celebrities, sports figures, political figures. Those are the ones that we hear about. Those are the ones we read about. But Jesus turns the tables on what it means to be great. Jesus says, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be as a slave or as a servant. Now we read what Jesus says here, and maybe we pass by it. But in that culture, this would have been shocking. A slave or a servant were the lowest rungs of society. People who had very little rights. Now we think about that and Maybe in today's culture, it would be like if Jesus said, so you want to be great, you want to have influence, you want to live a life of significance, go find a job at a fast food restaurant. Go apply at McDonald's or Burger King. That's the path to greatness. So what Jesus said is shocking. It's not what you would associate with greatness. One commentary that I read suggested that it might have even brought laughter to those who heard it. Yet Jesus says being great is about being a slave or a servant. What's Jesus' point here? It's that being great is not about achieving a position. It's about taking a posture. Being great is not about achieving a position. It's about taking a posture. Jesus says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Greatness is not about being served, but it's about serving others. About 70% of Americans cite their workplace as a major source of stress in their life. Over half of them report being unsatisfied and unhappy with their jobs. One researcher named Adam Graham offers some simple advice for how to improve that situation. And he says that we should become givers in our workplace. He knows that there's three different types of people in a workplace. There's takers, there's matchers, and there's givers. The takers kind of see the workplace, or we could apply this to all of life. They see workplace as, the, as a kind of a competitive environment that you have to look out for number one. You have to look out for your own self-interest to try to get ahead. The matchers look at relationships and they look at relationships as being governed by equal exchanges that I'll do this for you and you do this for me. And there's this kind of relationship that were, uh, you kind of match each other's behavior, but givers look outside themselves. They pay more attention to other people and what they need rather than what their own personal interests. They're governed by generosity. Grant found that Surprisingly, only 8% of people describe themselves as being givers at work because most people see the workplace as a competitive environment and the people who are giving are the people who will be left behind. But what he discovered in his research consistently that the most successful people in business were the people who were givers. One study of high school teachers, he found that they were less vulnerable to stress and exhaustion if they saw the impact their giving was having on their students. In a study of 68 firefighters, those who helped others on the job felt happier at home when they went to bed than those who did not. He asked the question, would you rather achieve success at work 
or anywhere for that matter, that comes at the expense of others or in ways that lift other people up. Greatness isn't about a position, it's about a posture. Imagine if Jesus tried to take the world's way to greatness. There's little chance that he would be born in Bethlehem. There's little chance that he would be born in a manger. Rather, angels might announce that born this day in the city of Jerusalem is a baby in a palace. Rather than being wrapped in swaddling clothes, he might be wrapped in a gold-infused blanket. There will be guards standing outside the gates of the palace, so no one could enter in, the shepherds or anyone else. There's little chance that Jesus would heal a leper or show grace to a prostitute, speak love to a Samaritan woman. Jesus' servants would ensure that no one unclean, no one of ill repute would ever come close to him. There'd probably be gates around the outside of the palace so that nobody unclean could come in. There's little chance the Pharisees or teachers of law would even be alive. If they said one word against him, he would just wipe them out. There's little chance that he would be poor. For after all, he does own a cattle on a thousand hills. He had probably overseen a number of new building projects, commanding slaves to build him temples and gardens and baths and theaters so that he might enjoy them. There'd be no way that he would die for his people. For he, after all, is a king. And what kind of a king would die for a people? The people are to sacrifice and protect the king at all costs. He is the last one that is to die. There's no way in the world that Jesus would be crucified on a cross. To be crucified would be the ultimate show of weakness. It would be the ultimate demonstration that he had no power whatsoever of what happened to him. That he's cursed by God. That's the route that Jesus could have taken. He was God. He had all power. He had all authority. And yet he chose to empty himself. He chose to be born in Bethlehem, a little town in a feeding trough. He chose that his birth would be announced to shepherds who came to see him. To wise men. He chose to associate with sinners, with tax collectors, with prostitutes. People who were considered unclean. Samaritans. He chose to be poor, even though he owned all riches. Choosing to have few possessions. And ultimately, he chose to go to the cross. The the king sacrificing himself for his subjects so that we might be saved and have a relationship with him. Greatness comes by taking the position of a servant. And we can do that because Jesus has done that for us. Philippians 2, 5-8 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus wasn't trying to achieve a position. He did not count equality with God something to be grasped. He knew who he was and he took the posture of a servant or a slave. Giving himself 
for all of humanity. And in so doing, showed the greatest act of love that's ever been committed in, the, in all of history. Paying the penalty for our sins and rising again from the grave. And because of that, God exalted him to a place where he's, there's no name like the name of Jesus. Philippians 2, 9-11 continues, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. How does the church become great again? The church becomes great by serving others. The only way that the church is going to achieve greatness and significance in this world and influence is as if the church serves those around her. If the church is a church that demonstrates love and grace to those who she comes in contact with. If the church follows the path of Jesus who came not to be served, but to serve and to give himself up. As a church locally here, and as the church in America, we need to maybe shift our focus. It's not about us and our own comfort. It's not about just getting people together and having a good time and you know, just doing some fun things. It's about giving ourselves to those around us. Taking the form of a servant. Showing Jesus' love to those we encounter. Albert Einstein had a couple of paintings or pictures on his wall. And the pictures were of two scientists, uh, Newton and Maxwell. And uh, towards the end of his life, he had those pictures replaced with two other pictures. uh, Pictures of Gandhi and Schweitzer. And he explained to people why he shifted the pictures and got rid of the old pictures. He said it was time to replace the image of success with the image of service. And I think the same thing is true for the church. We need to replace our image of success with the image of service. We're successful when we're serving with the hands and feet of Jesus. That's what it's all about. It's not about achieving a position. It's about taking a posture. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you did not count equality with God something to be grasped. That even though you are in the very nature of God, you chose to humble yourself, to take the form of a servant, to live an ordinary life, and to die the death of a criminal on the cross. We thank you that While at any point you could have called your angels in heaven to rain down fire upon them, we thank you that you paid the penalty for our sins. And because of that, you offer us new life. Lord, as we live our lives as a church, and as the church in America, Lord, we pray that we would be people who serve with your hands and your feet. That we would not be trying to achieve a position, not just trying to become something or somebody. But in everything that we do, we show your love to those around us. Lord, give us the strength to do that through your gospel and through your Holy Spirit. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.